Father, we thank you for this time of study, Lord, and we have not forgotten those who are not with us here tonight. Uh, We pray for Mike and just a quick healing with him and his body, Lord, and we also pray for Austin, who is uh, still over there fighting for us and for this country. And Lord, as he has a few months left, I pray that you would continue to strengthen him by your Holy Spirit and that you would minister him, minister to him by your word, Lord, and that he would have many Christians around him who could bring encouragement to him and that he would continue to be a prophet out there to those people, Lord, and that the result of it would be salvation for many soldiers who may not know you, Lord. So keep him safe. God, please keep him safe out there as well. And bring him home soon. And we pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, so let's welcome Robert up for a nice little devotion. How are you guys doing tonight? Um, I'm going to be in uh, Philippians 4. And uh, while you guys are during, turning there, would you join me in a word of prayer? Father, I just thank you so much, Lord. I thank you for this opportunity, Lord, to to be in a coffee shop and, and to share your word, Lord, to, to worship you, to be in public and proclaim your name, Lord. And Lord, I just ask that uh, you would remove whatever anxiousness I have, Lord, whatever worries, Lord, and that you would empty me of me, Lord, and that you would speak tonight, Lord, that your words would be put in my mouth, Lord, as you promised Jeremiah, that you would put words in my mouth for the people. I thank you, Lord. I trust you, Lord. I love you, Lord. It's in Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Oh, nervous tonight for some reason. So I'm going to be in Philippians 4. I'm going to start in 11. And uh, I'm going to be talking about contentment. So let's just start in the Word. Not that, just to give a little context, Paul is speaking, um, he's in prison. And he's uh, thanking the Philippians for, for providing for his needs. That's why he starts with, Not that I speak in regard of need, for I have learned in whatever state I am to be content. I know how to be abased. I know how to be abound. Wherever and in all things, I know to both be full and to be hungry, to both be abound and to suffer need. I... I have learned in whatever state I'm in to be content. Um, contentment, contentment is something that is is something that's easily lost. It's something that needs to be learned. It's something that um, when Paul is speaking, he says, "I have learned to be a base, and I have learned to be abound." It means he's he's learned to to be content with nothing and with everything. I think that for us, we lose our contentment when, when things are hard, when we, when we don't have anything, when, when things are taken away, be it our, our house, um, our money, our job, a relationship, a family member. Something is taken, something has gone away that has removed our contentment and I think that a loss of contentment is a is a loss of a trust a loss of trust in God. And I know that I'm not saying that you shouldn't you shouldn't have feelings. I'm not saying that you shouldn't be um, that you shouldn't have a 
a worry with inside you when, when those things come. But I think that I do recognize that when those things come, you, you have a feeling of pain or a feeling of loss or a feeling of missing something. There is a real feeling. And I recognize that you have those feelings. But we're not, we're not run by our feelings. If we were to be run by our feelings, we would just be all over the place. You can, you can force a feeling if you want. You can think about a sad thing and be sad. You can think about a happy thing and be happy. Um, your feelings are very sporadic and, and very fickle. They can be all over the place. Um, but he also says, I have learned to be content when I am abound. I think you can see in um, movie stars or celebrities a loss of contentment when they have everything. You can think to yourself, if only I had a million dollars, if only I had that job, if only if I had that relationship, I would be content. But those guys have everything, and you can see that they're not content. They're not content because they're, they're taking drugs or they're, they're, they're living in excess or drinking and moving from relationship to relationship. Their contentment is found in things. I think that... Um, I recognize that that you have feelings and that the feelings really hurt you. And the reason that I speak about contentment is that my contentment was lost. I don't, I'm not really a teacher. I don't really, I can't really pick out a scripture and, and teach like Aaron and Alfredo do. Um, my, my gifting is mercy and encouragement and giving. And because my gift is mercy, that means I care for you, whether or not I know you. I can see you. When you are happy, I can see when you're sad. I see those things, and I want to do something about it, so I encourage. Um, so I'm here to encourage and to remind you that, that God is in control, and that, yes, there are, there are seasons in life. In Ecclesiastes 3, it talks about there's a time to cry and a time to laugh. There's a time... There's a time to, um, why don't I just look at my Bible? (laughs) I thought I was going to do it from memory, but I couldn't. There it is. It says there's a time, starting in four, it says there's a time to cry, there's a time to laugh, there's a time to grieve, and there's a time to dance. There's a time for everything, but you need to trust in God in those times. In Romans 8, it says that it's gonna, he's going to work it out for, for the good of... Romans 8 says, we know that all things are going to work together for the good of those who love God and those who are called according to his purpose. For he who he foreknew, he also predestined, and he conformed into his image and in his, his son. He's... He's going to work it out for good. Nothing from God is bad. Everything from God is good. And he's going to use it for his purpose. He's going to use it for his plan. He's going to use it to conform you to what he wants. So I want to remind you just to be be content in God. Our contentment doesn't come from things. It doesn't come from relationships. It doesn't come from anything but God. But 
I think the key word of that verse is that he says he's learned to be content. So how do we learn to be content? What do we do while God is is modeling us, while he's molding us? And to and what do we do with the pain that we feel? And the I'm just going to put that down because this is causing me to. What do we do with that? What are we going to do? How do we learn to be content? You can read that and it says, I have learned to be content. And you can think, well, Paul, you're an apostle. You, you met Jesus. You know he's real. You know what's going on. But I think from the text, you can, you can pull things. It's not a guaranteed thing. It's not a how-to, a how-to be content but I think you can, uh, you can pull things from his encouragement to be content. The very next verse where he goes in um, Philippians 4, Philippians 4.13, he says, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. He's not saying some things. He's not saying, well, these things over here. But he's saying all things I can do through Christ who strengthens me. We can, the way that I look at that verse is that I can do nothing without God's strength. I can do nothing. I can't stand here without God's strength. I can't speak to you without God's strength. I can't get up in the morning without God's strength. So you need to trust in God's strength. You need to call on God's strength. You need to ask God for his strength to get you through whatever has caused you to not be content. His strength is real. Trust his strength. Ask for his strength. My second point, he... he, we're going to move up in the chapter in, uh, in verse 6. He says, Be anxious for nothing, but with prayer and supplication and thanksgiving, let your requests be known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and minds through Christ Jesus. He wants you to pray. He wants you not to be anxious. In the in in New Living Translation, it says, don't worry about anything, but pray about everything. Give thanks to God for what he has already done for you. He wants you to pray. You need to be praying every day. You need to pray whenever you feel anxious. You need to pray always. Whenever you think about whatever's going on, pray. Whenever you feel any kind of pain, pray. Whenever you wake up in the morning, pray. When you go to bed, pray. He wants you to pray. There's real power in prayer. Don't don't let it be your last resort. Let it be your first resort. That's where the power is going to come from. God is going to take care of it. You're not going to take care of it. God is going to take care of it. So ask him to take care of it. Let your requests be known to God. The next point is in um, verse 8. He says, Finally, brethren, whatever is true, whatever is noble, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely... Whatever is of good report, if there is any virtue, if there is anything praiseworthy, meditate on these things. Um, he wants you to meditate on the things of God. He wants you to meditate on whatever is true, whatever is just, whatever is lovely, whatever is pure. He gives you a bunch of things to meditate on. And what are the things of God? Well, the scriptures, the word of God are the things of God. In uh, Psalms 119.11, it says, Your word I have hidden in my heart so that I might not sin against you. Me- scripture memori- memorization 
is key to any Christian's life. I memorized this section of text from 4 to 14, and that's how I pulled this, this devil I'm doing right now. You can gain a lot from just memorizing. It's not just to memorize, to memorize, to say that I know these things, but to really meditate, it really penetrates your heart, and it really reminds you. This section of, of this chapter has a lot of encouragement and a lot of instruction. That's why I memorized it. Maybe you, maybe you, knew, you need to memorize it to, to remember to be content and know how to be content. But he wants you to meditate on the things of God. And in verse 9 he says, his, his next instruction is, The things which you have learned, received, heard, and seen in me, these do, and the God of peace will be with you. He wants you to do the things of God. The things of God are whatever ministry. And, and if you're not in a ministry, it's your ministry is your job. Your ministry is your family. Your ministry is your school. He wants you to go out and share. He wants you to be in the people. He wants you to, to be out ministering. You need to be, you need to be sharing with people. It's important. And my last point is, I'm going to move back to the top. It says Philippians 4.4, 4, Rejoice in the Lord always. And again, I say rejoice. You can do all those things that I gave you. You can read. You can, you can pray. You can meditate. But I think that this verse is probably one of the greatest verses to remember. I don't care what's going on in your life. I don't care what you've been stripped of. I don't care what you're missing. I don't care what you're longing for. You always have something to rejoice in. And you may ask, well, what am I going to rejoice in, Robert? You have no idea what's going on. We sang it last week in scripture worship. Psalms fifty-one, twelve: Restore unto me the joy of thy salvation and renew a right spirit within me. I don't care if you have nothing. If you're standing on the corner with nothing, nothing in the bank, nowhere to live, no clothes on your back, you still have your salvation. And that's where our contentment is found. Our contentment is found in our salvation. We were going to hell. We deserve to go to hell. But now we get to go to heaven for free. And I think that if you've lost your contentment, if you've lost your peace, you can do those things to remind you but I think if you're tonight, if you're hurting, if you're not trusting, I think you need to do what that verse says, is to ask the Lord to restore unto me the joy of my salvation and renew a right spirit within me. Trust God. He knows what he's doing. He knows what's going on. And rejoice in your salvation. Rejoice in the Lord always. And again, I say rejoice. Will you pray with me? Father, I just thank you so much, Lord, for salvation. Lord, I thank you for what you've given me, what what you're going to give me. And Lord, I ask in in my situation that you would you would help me to be content, just to be content in you, not in my things, not in what you might give me, but what you've already given me. And Lord, I pray for these in front of me, Lord. I just ask that you would be with them, Lord. Help them to, to remember to pray, to, to read, to, to spend time with you.
to trust in you, and to rejoice. Lord, I thank you once again, and I love you so much, Lord. It's in Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Man, he's always got a sweet word. Thank you, Rob. I remember having to go teach to a bunch of youth leaders. Remember in Rancho? You went with me? Super nervous. They asked me to teach on foot washing to a bunch of youth leaders. Dude, this mic is still low. Anyways, I had been really nervous about it, and no one was able to go with me except for Rob, and we got in there, and it was a packed house, and they were about to put on this big event for the Hmong community, and they were going to do a foot washing, and my message was to spur them all on to wash each other's feet. So I was kind of nervous, and Rob had some sweet words that he shared with me that day, and I have not forgotten them. In fact, I turned to that passage as we were doing worship again tonight, what you had said then, so thank you so much. Tonight we'll be in 1 Corinthians chapter 5, if you want to turn there with me. We have closed the book of Romans and now opened Corinthians, and if you're a part of this study, you know that we teach every seven chapters, and we meet on Tuesdays to uh, get into that. Man, this mic is just not working. All right. Hopefully this will work. But a part of church tradition, we never do this. Usually some churches will have the whole congregation stand to read the passage together. I'm going to ask you guys to do that tonight. We never do that. But if you would, please come off your romps and we will read the word of God together. The first passage I had to teach to you guys as a teacher here was Matthew 26. And if you remember, that was like 20, no, 70 some verses. And it was kind of rough because that was my first night here and I had to ramble for 70 verses long. Now we only have 13, so it won't be a problem to read. Just follow along with me. Verse 1. It is actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you and of a kind that is not tolerated even among pagans. For a man has his father's wife and you are arrogant. Ought you not rather to mourn? Let him who has done this be removed from among you. For though absent in body, I am present in spirit, and as if present, I have already pronounced judgment on the one who did such a thing. When you are assembled in the name of the Lord Jesus, and my spirit is present with the power of our Lord Jesus, you are to deliver this man, Satan, for the destruction of the flesh, so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. Your boasting is not good. Do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump? Cleanse out the old leaven that you may be a new lump, as you really are unleavened. For Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. Let us therefore celebrate the festival, not with the old leaven, the leaven of malice and evil, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. I wrote to you in my letter not to associate with sexually immoral people, not at all meaning the sexually immoral of this world, or the greedy and swindlers or idolaters, since then you would need to go out of the whole world. But now I am writing to you not to associate with anyone who bears the name of brother if he is guilty of sexual immorality or greed, or is an idolater, reviler, drunkard, or swindler, not even to eat with such a one. For what have I to do with judging outsiders? 
It is not is it not those inside the church whom you are to judge? God judges those outside. Purge the evil person from among you. You go ahead, sit down. It wasn't that cool? Standing and reading. But as you kind of just soak that in, we're in a very serious chapter tonight. He's dealing with sexual immorality within the church. And so as I sat over this passage and have been reading it constantly, uh, it's pretty weighty. And so I would ask that you would have your minds girded tonight, that you would not allow Satan to rip you off in any kind of way. Uh, Be focused, be attentive, and allow the Lord to speak. And now let's pray. Father, I'm so thankful, Lord, that your word provides me the path to life. Even the ones that we come across, God, such as these. During this time, Lord, I pray that you would keep me faithful to your word. And that your Holy Spirit would come down in a powerful way and minister to all of us. That each would examine their own life. So be with this time, Lord. Be glorified. Lift up the name of Jesus. We pray all these things in his name. Amen. Well, if you've been reading 1 Corinthians at all, you've seen kind of Paul going down the checklist of what he needed to address with the people. He first opened in in the first chapter, starting in the 10th verse, discussing wisdom. The Corinthians of that day were, were puffed up. They were prideful in the fact that they had great human intellect. They were relying on their own knowledge. They also had pride in another area. And that pride was that they were causing division amongst each other, saying, I'm of Apollos, I'm of Cephas, I'm of Paul, or I'm of Christ. And so the pride was stirring in many areas. It was coming out in their wisdom. It was coming out in their division. And now we're going to see their pride coming out in the sexual immorality because they begin to boast in it, as we've just read. And much like the Corinthian church of that day, I think we find ourselves in the same exact position. A very blessed church with many different gifts. Though at the same time, there are things around us in this world that drive the world and begin to influence the church. Because as you read this book, you'll start to see how the world was influencing them. And you know, it's been said, either the church is going to conform the world or the world is going to conform the church that's how it's going to happen and clearly in this instance the world was beginning to conform the church and we had this problem i got a chance to watch the super bowl a couple weeks ago as many of you guys did i'm sure and watching it they have all the commercials that come on they pay millions of dollars for these things, and they advertise their best stuff. They're supposed to be creative and witty. You know, it's supposed to be the funniest commercial you've seen. But sadly, I saw the most disgusting things. I could not believe what some of these ads were selling. But then I thought in my mind, well, they're geniuses. Because if there's anything that this world runs off, they know how to tease us with it. And the two categories that I kind of saw to be the commercials that day were violence and sex, sold in every commercial, even in a Doritos commercial. Come on. But they know what they're doing. Those things do drive us. In fact, they even drove the Corinthians. You know there that the temple of uh, Aphrodite was there. They had a temple in which a thousand plus religious prostitutes would be there every night. 
performing religious acts. And this was beginning to influence the church. Look there at verse 1. Paul said that it was reported among them that sexual immorality was taking place. This isn't private. This isn't something that was kept secret or kind of brushed under the rug. This was public news known by everybody, including Paul, that there was sexual immorality among them. He says this isn't even tolerated among the pagans. In fact, it was Roman law that incest would not be tolerated. As we see here, for a man has his father's wife. Notice the wording here, has, present tense, not past. The son didn't have the father's wife and it was a one-night stand, a fling, one mistake, and he repented of it and he had changed. No, currently, Paul's saying currently the son still is with his father's wife, still in sin, has not repented of it. And the church is known of this. In fact, he says there in verse 2, they're arrogant about it. Arrogant, they're prideful, they're boasting in this sin. He says, you ought not rather to mourn, right? Shouldn't you mourn over something like this? And look at the logic of his mind here. He says, you ought not rather to mourn. Let him who has done this be removed from among you. Another translation says, in order that he who has done this might be removed from among you. So the purpose here that Paul is saying to mourn, to be heartbroken over this sin, to be sorrowful over this sin as a congregation, is that you would be able to exercise church discipline. And get him out of there. He's not repenting of it. But it's the opposite. They're prideful, and he's there. Their pride is causing tolerance of sin in the church at this time. They're okay with it. They're boasting in it. That's like if someone was to walk in here tonight, and you heard off the mic, we have eight couples in here, and they've been together for a long time, and they're all committing adultery. And we all screamed, cheered. Can you imagine what you'd be thinking at that time to, to hear a congregation who claims to know Christ prideful in the fact that there is adultery going on? Even worse in this case, incest. We're not really told that it was his biological mother. He says it fought his father's wife, so it could have most certainly been his stepmother at the time. Mother might have died or some kind of divorce. Who knows what really took place? But incest is going on. And they're prideful about it. They're boasting in this. And I had to stop and think about this and kind of compare it to today's world, and I think we see the complete opposite of pride. Pride was allowing them to tolerate sin and restricting them from exercising church discipline. But in today's world, I think we find ourselves under a banner of false humility, right? I can't possibly call out that person. I'm in, I'm in no position to judge. Who are you to cast the first stone? Who are you to cast judgment upon someone? And the, the church says we do this in humility, right? Oh, we're humble. We don't want to cast judgment on someone. So rather than being arrogant about it, we're, we're pretending to be humble about it. I think it's disobedience. The Lord calls it out right here. You're to exercise church discipline. And we're thinking we're being humble by, nah, we don't want to call out sin. That's, that's not our place. The Word says differently. The Word says we are in that position to call out sin. 
But what would lead a congregation to do this, to be arrogant about it? Prideful in such a sin. And I could think of a number of places where Paul addresses wrong thinking. In Romans 6, he starts his argument, should we continue in sin that grace may abound? Right? He asks that question right in the beginning. If, if Jesus is magnified in his love and mercy and grace while we sin, shouldn't we just continue in sin? Jesus is being glorified, is he not, through his grace? Paul says, certainly not. Absolutely not. Or in Galatians 5, when he's uh, addressing the people and saying, listen, you're free in Christ, but that freedom doesn't mean you have a license to continue in sin and to abuse that. Yet I'm sure here for the Corinthians, they're thinking, well, this is a good thing. Because God's grace is being seen in the fact that they're sinning. This is, this is really good. We should be boasting in this. And so the first issue that I take with this is that their boasting is restricting church discipline. In fact, it's the root of their pride that is tolerating sin. As in our world, false humility tolerates sin, right? How the world would define humility today is to tolerate sin. That's a humble thing to do. The Bible says humility is the one who submits himself to God and obeys what he says. That's humility according to the Bible. It was Jesus who said, Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst after righteousness, for they shall be filled. That's the definition of humility there. Not to tolerate sin, not to allow it to go on any longer. Second problem, look down at verse 6. Your boasting is not good. Do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump? In other words, Paul is saying, don't you know one rotten apple can ruin all of them in the basket? This thing can spread like wildfire. You can begin to destroy the church from the inside out if you allow sin to linger, if it's not called out for what it is. And he gives an Old Testament example here in 7. He says, cleanse out the old leaven that you may be a new lump as you really are unleavened. For Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. Let us therefore celebrate the festival. So he's given a quick reference back to the Old Testament. He's saying, listen, during the, the celebration of the Passover, it would take place, and then a week after the celebration, they would keep the leavened bread out of the house. They would not include it in. They would keep all the yeast out. All the bread would stay out. They would not have it in the house. And so what Paul is doing is, is saying that the bread, the yeast, is symbolizing sin. And that Jesus is now our Passover lamb. But we just don't celebrate for a week after recognizing him as the Passover lamb who was sacrificed for our sin. We celebrate for a lifetime. Our celebration is an eternal one. Therefore, keeping the yeast out is something that we do forever. For our entire life, we keep the yeast out. We keep the sin out. We fight sin. We, we purge sin. Uh, we confess sin. We repent of sin. Now, I'm not here going to stand here and, and, and preach uh, perfection by any means. I fall short every day. I sin every day. And I know you guys struggle with the same things as well. But what we will not do as the body of Christ, we will not make peace with sin. We will n never make a truce with sin. We'll declare war on sin until the day we die as Christians. That's what Paul was calling them to do. However, that was not the case. In their minds, they're thinking, well, Jesus was sacrificed for my sins. He paid the punishment for me. 
but I'm going to continue in sin so that his grace can abound. Because after all, he's going to forgive me, right? Jesus will forgive me. How often have we heard that discussion with someone? Trying to approach a, a brother in sin or a sister in sin. And they say, well, yeah, Jesus, I love Jesus. He's, he's my Savior. He's forgiven me of sin. And you address this sin, you tell them this is not what Christians do. And their answer, well, why? God's going to forgive me. God loves me. He will forgive me. I'm going to continue in it. A lot of us have had that conversation. Well, if Jesus is going to forgive me, then I'm going to continue to live in sin. That's all there is to it. I mean, at the end of the day, I'm forgiven, right? I am forgiven. So let's glorify Jesus in our sin because his grace will abound at that point. And Paul says, absolutely not. And I want to turn to Titus chapter 2, verse 14. I've been taking up residency here in Titus lately in my devotions that I've been so blessed. Paul makes it pretty clear. Let me um, just add the last word from verse 13, which is Jesus. It says there, Who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. Did you hear that? He gave himself for two reasons according to this verse. Number one was to redeem us from all lawlessness. And the second reason that he sacrificed himself was to purify himself. I'm sorry, to purify us. And so if we're going to say as Christians or so-called Christians that, well, I'm going to continue in impurity week after week after week after week and God's going to forgive me, you're rejecting the very purpose of the cross. It says here in this verse, he died for you so that you would be redeemed and purified. Purified. So you cannot have Jesus as the one who pardons your sins, but reject Jesus as the one who purifies your sins. They go hand in hand. If you reject him as your purifier, you cannot have him as the one who pardons your sins. Christ is not divided. In fact, it's evidence that we have been pardoned by Christ if we have a passion for purity in our life. That's the proof right there. The proof that you have been pardoned by Christ is that there is a deeply rooted passion to be pure and to represent him in all facets of your life. Not to continue in impurity and abuse his grace. Though many may think like that. So if you're faced in a conversation, that is a great passage to address. Titus 2.14 it lays it out for you clearly. And if you're in this room tonight hearing my voice and you think you're safe in abusing God's grace, read this verse. Because he calls that those who are pardoned also receive him as a purifier. You can't have it both ways. You can't have it both ways. And so Paul's solution here as he continues in verse 9, I wrote to you in my letter not to associate with sexually immoral people, 
not at all meaning the sexually immoral of this world or the greedy and swindlers or idolaters, since then you would need to go out of the whole world. Paul is simply saying here, listen, I didn't write for the purpose of telling you that you can't intermingle or associate yourselves with the world. I mean, that's impossible. You have to. If, if I told you to do that, you would, there would be no purpose. You'd have to leave the world, he's saying. But he continues in verse 11, but I did write to you not to associate with anyone who bears the name of brother. Some of your translations might say this, so-called brother. I think that's the best translation if you have that there. Or claims the name brother. But I think so-called brother is the best one there. Who bears the name of brother. If he is guilty of sexual immorality or greed. Or is an idolater, reviler, drunkard, or swindler. Not even to eat with such a one. He says, listen, for I have no case in judging the outsiders. He kind of asks a rhetorical question here. Is it not those inside the church whom you are to judge? Verse 13, God judges those outside. Purge the evil person from among you, Paul says. So we see a common theme here. Verse 2, let him who has done this be removed from among you. Verse 7, cleanse out the old leaven that you may be a new lump. And verse 13, purge the evil person from among you. Paul's making it clear. Exercise church discipline when it's necessary. If there is no repentance in the life of the person, be biblical and exercise church discipline. We're not doing it out of pride. We're not doing it to to be holier than thou or to point the finger or to be like a Pharisee. Take the purity of the church according to this passage right here. We're doing it because we mourn over sin. We're sorrowful over sin. That's why he says we do these things. And I want to go back and read verses 3 through 5. I think this is the meat of his passage right here. The main point that Paul is trying to get at. Certainly a, a verse that raises a lot of questions when you hear the phrase. For though absent in body, I am present in spirit. And as, and as if present, I have already pronounced judgment on the one who did such a thing. When you are assembled in the name of the Lord Jesus, and my, pre, my, and my spirit is present with the power of the Lord Jesus, you are to deliver this man to Satan for the destruction of the flesh, so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. So what he's saying, listen, I, I can't be there with you. Uh, I'm with you in spirit, and I'm going to do things in spirit as, as best I can to help the situation. So prayer would be a huge one for him. And then secondly, he gives instruction on how to deal with it. He says you're to gather as a group, as a congregation, in the name of the Lord Jesus and in his power, and you're to deliver this person to Satan for the destruction of the flesh. Interesting words. Destruction of the flesh. Jesus also mentions this in Matthew chapter 18. You'll remember in dealing with a sinning brother, he says, you're to address the person one-on-one. And if there's still no repentance, you are to go before someone else and bring him as a witness and address him again. And if they repent, either of those two times, it says that you've won the brother, if you, you've won the sister back. But they say if that doesn't happen, then you're to take him before the church. And then church discipline is to be played out at that point. Removed from the congregation. 
Paul changes the, the wordage here, and he says, For the destruction of the flesh, deliver this man into the hand of Satan. That seems pretty harsh. Really, give him over. What does that look like? What does it mean to give somebody over to Satan? Is that really what Christians do? And there's one other passage uh, that Paul writes where he talks about this, and that's in 1 Timothy one uh, twenty. He says, I handed over to Satan Hymenaeus and Alexander for... Uh, they had been teaching false stuff, and he says that he wanted them to be taught not to blasphemy. That was his purpose for handing them over to Satan. They were false teachers in the church, and he was warning Timothy about these people. And the purpose there was not just to exercise discipline for the sake of discipline, but it was so that they would learn not to blasphemy in the church anymore. So there was a purpose, but the interesting thing with this verse is that the only time that this exact Greek word is used is in the Old Testament. It's in the Greek translation of the Old Testament, and it's found in Job chapter 2. So go ahead and turn there, if you will. Of all places, Job. As you know, this is a discussion between the Lord and Satan. Satan desiring to uh, call out God's best servant, Job. And, and so this is what the Lord says back to Satan in verse 6. And the Lord said to Satan, Behold, he is in your hand. Only spare his life. So Satan went out from the presence of the Lord and struck Job with loathsome sores from the sole of his foot to the crown of his head. Incredible. Handed over to Satan. Job was a blameless man. And you know what the end result of all that was? Job said in in chapter 42, verse 6, My eyes have seen the Lord, and I despise myself, and I repent with dust and ashes. Job was handed over to Satan, and at the end of it he says, I have seen the Lord, and I despise myself. Incredible. Satan was used as a means for Job's holiness, Satan. Satan used as an instrument to sanctify Job. This isn't the only place that happens if you remember in 2 Corinthians. Paul talks about this as well. He says, Jesus had sent a, a messenger of Satan to buffet him, to put a thorn in his flesh, to keep him humble. So he wouldn't be so conceited in the fact that he was the great apostle Paul and done all these great things. He's buffeted by a messenger of Satan, a thorn in the flesh. Then he cries out to the Lord three times for deliverance, and it doesn't come. In fact, we're told it never comes. But it's incredible to think that God uses Satan to bring about holiness and humility and sanctification. Think about this now. Satan hates humility. He hates holiness. He hates sanctification. So what does Jesus do? He uses them as the instrument to bring those about in the lives of his people. That is incredible. And you guys remember how Jesus responds to Paul? He says, my grace is sufficient for you. My power is made perfect in your weakness. And so when Paul makes a statement to the church, 
deliver them into the hands of Satan for the destruction of the flesh, it can mean, I think, exactly this. Because sometimes we, we simply assume, well, that just means to kick him out of the church and to cut off any kind of fellowship with him. And I think that can be the case, but I think Scripture says there's a little bit more to that. For the destruction of the flesh, maybe some kind of physical ailment because of, of his sin, consequences of his sin on his body, so that his soul would be preserved in the last day. So like Job said, that he had seen the Lord and he had repented and despised himself, that should be our prayer in exercising church discipline. Not coming off as the group that's holier than thou and pointing the finger, but it would be to desire to see their soul preserved. To see Christ's grace poured out in their life. To see the power of Jesus magnified in their weaknesses. But we're so often scared to address sin when it's time to address sin. As a group, even as this small body here. There's a lot of good relationships in here. You guys know each other very well. And it's so easy to take the approach of, I'm just, I'm not in a position to do that. But it's important that it happens. Because Paul says at the end of it all that the goal is to preserve the soul, the person. And sometimes that you that means using Satan. It's the craziest thing to think about. But it displays the power of Jesus over demonic forces. Over sin, over death, he uses whatever he needs to to bring about the greatest good in our life and the glory for himself. He uses all those things. Even the hands of Satan, the one who hates humility, he forces him and says, you will make my people humble. And he hates that. He hates that because he knows what the end result is. And so that is a great thing for us to think about, that our Savior is risen, he's triumphant, and he controls everything. Even the demonic forces, even these things, when it comes to church discipline. It's a powerful thing to think about this. But we know that Paul did not take it lightly. The sexual immorality in the church, in the church, they were boasting in it, they were prideful. And Paul says that leads to lack of church discipline that leads to destruction you can poison the whole leaven but the things that we can take away from church discipline are these the first one it allows us to deal with sin as it is be mournful over it as verse 2 said you ought to mourn over sin you ought to show true sorrow over it the second thing as we looked at it, it brings about purity within the body of christ it causes us to be pure, to be zealous for good work, as Titus said. And thirdly, lastly, it ultimately preserves the soul. Church discipline is for their good. Notice they were called to do this in love. Church discipline, it's an expression of love for one another. Not pride, not religion. Not to be like a Pharisee, but it is an expression of our love for one another as Christians. The best way that I can love my brothers is to keep them accountable in many areas. That's how I can express my love. To call out sin when it's time to call out sin. 
I'm doing it because I care for their soul. I'm not trying to be religious. I'm not trying to play the game of the Pharisee. We love them enough to call out sin, even when it's in the church and within the body. Pray. Father, we thank you for your word and the instructions that it has on our life. We ask, Lord, that as we reflect on this text, that we would examine ourselves, we would be ones who would constantly be fighting sin, be purging it from our lives, desiring also to see the church become more holy, to be made more like Jesus. That we would not take it lightly, Lord, but that we would be bold and biblical in our approach to to church discipline. Willing to step out and to do it in love and with mercy. Father, we thank you for this time. We, We pray that we would walk away changed by this, Lord. We pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.